On Mother's Day, it's a day that we express a little bit more thankfulness to our moms. I know I'm going to call mine later. It's a day when we show some appreciation to them for their care for us. And it's a day that we thank the Lord for the moms that he's given us. But for many of us, Mother's Day is also a day and we recognize the, what Jesus Christ is doing in our wives' lives, our wives who have children, the mothers among us, and not just ours, but all the moms around us. We see what Christ is doing in their lives. We recognize the beauty of their sacrifice. This morning, we're, we're going to recognize together what Christ is accomplishing in the lives of his people. But it won't be limited to just mothers. We're going to see together how excellent righteousness is. What the beauty of righteousness is. The beauty of righteousness that God accomplishes in his people. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter. I'm going to remind us, and I'll, I'll be reading this morning from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, but I'm going to pick up at 1 Peter 2, 2 12. A verse we've read many times, but that's because it's introducing the large section that we've been in. 1 Peter 2, 12, it says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, those who don't know the Lord Jesus, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's what Peter's been doing from 1 Peter 2, verse 13, all the way up to last week in 3, 7. In that large section, he's been describing what kind of excellent behavior would draw the world's attention and bring them to wonder the difference among us so that they too would become his worshipers. Now we don't know that that doesn't always happen. But that, that is Peter's desire here and his purpose is that as they see our excellent behavior, our excellent conduct, that they will glorify God on the day of visitation that they become his worshipers. We've seen the excellent behavior of citizens to government, of slaves to masters, which was common in the ancient world, of wives and husbands. And this morning, of, in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12, Peter's going to conclude this section by summarizing what excellent behavior is like. What does that behavior look like? What should these relationships be like among God's people? And what should those relationships be like with outsiders who are opposed to the truth of God's word? As Peter describes these relationships, he returns to the theme of, of, of rewards, which he has come to several times, of the future that we have looked forward to as God's people. And Peter knows that if we're going to live these, these excellent lives, these, these beautifully righteous lives, we're going to need encouragement, and he gives that in this section. So I'm going to read from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, and we'll see the excellence of righteousness described here and how we're motivated to pursue it. You'll notice in some of your Bibles that uh, verses 10 through 12 are, are, are capitalized. They're indented like it, it's a poem, and that's because there he's quoting from Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is a, a psalm that's important to Peter, and, and we see him mention it or be influenced by this psalm uh, several times. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. To sum up, or some of your Bibles say, finally, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, 
and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And here's where the quotation starts right after four. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Now, Father, I thank you, Lord. And, and really, we see these, these, these five words here, or these descriptions of what righteousness is. I pray, Father, that this morning we would see the excellence of it, this, this beautiful conduct that saints are to have. And we can come before you confessing this morning that we don't have a capacity in ourselves to have this kind of behavior in a way that pleases you, Lord. That in ourselves, we might be able to put on a smile when someone offends us. But in ourselves, in our own strength, we would never bless them. We know and we come before you humbly, confessing that that's only through the righteousness we can have in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that is a transforming righteousness that makes us like your son. So as we come and we see this beautiful picture of righteousness and we see how, how you motivate this righteousness and even how we can be certain of this righteousness because of what Psalm 34 says, Lord, we pray that we'd come before you humbly and dependently not looking for strength within ourselves, Lord, but relying upon you. And so even this morning, we do look towards your resurrected son. And we thank you that he has been given all authority and all power and that he has sent his spirit. And through your spirit, you've unified us to your son so that we have the capacity to live these, these beautifully righteous lives, Lord. And we do want these lives so that you would be glorified. We pray, Father, as we get into uh, your word here, that you would give us ears that are open to hear. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are attentive to our prayers even now, and we want uh, to be as much like your son as possible. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12, Peter encourages the saints that righteousness will be rewarded by the Lord. And he has a purpose for this. So that you will conduct yourself excellently in the world. We're going to see that Peter encourages the saints that righteousness will be rewarded by the Lord so that you will conduct yourself excellently in the world. So let's first look, look first at the excellence of righteousness. Now, you'll notice that that word righteousness isn't there, but Peter will get to speaking about righteousness in verse 12, as he quotes from Psalm 34. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And I think that righteous, pleasing God, living according to his law, is a great way of describing uh, the, the, the character of verses 8 and 9. What Peter portrays here is truly beautiful. And for those of us who are going to write uh, cards to moms later, and we celebrate what God is doing in their lives, this is what we think about as true beauty. It's excellent conduct. On a, some mornings here at the church, I like to walk west on Commonwealth, turn north on Wood, and I cross Chapman. And on the other side of Wood, as I go up Chapman, I come across a house that, for some reason in God's grace, 
Whoever owns a house has made beautiful pink roses right there along, along that sidewalk. And when I walk past those beautiful pink roses, my heart rejoices. I thank God for who planted those roses, who, who maintains them for me as I walk by. I'm sure that they inside the house enjoy them too. But then I, I celebrate God's grace and the fact that in this world with so much sin, we get to see beautiful roses. I praise the Lord for his kindness in letting these roses grow. God's people are to be the roses of this world that bring himself praise. And that's what this excellent conduct is going to be like. It's going to be stopping people's attention, going to be pausing them so that they look at us and say, why are you different? So that we can tell them about that our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. Peter begins in verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, to sum up, or, or ESV has finally. It's the end of a section which Peter is focused on, how the saints are to have this, this excellent conduct. Peter has addressed all of them as citizens. He's addressed slaves. He's addressed wives. He's addressed husbands. But now Peter concludes this section next by saying all of you, to sum up all of you. I'm going to say, I'm going to describe what for all of you this excellent conduct, this, this beauty of righteousness is. The first word he uses is harmonious. Or in the ESV, it's unity of mind. It's being like-minded, united in spirit, having the same mind. This this. Uh, this particular word is only used here in the New Testament, but there's the, the, it's a similar concept to other words and phrases in, in the New Testament. We see it, for example, in Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Jesus Christ. All of us sharing the same mind. And here's the purpose in verse 6 of Romans 15. So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the purpose of us, although being a diverse group, having one mind, so that together we would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. We'd be united in our praise of him. In Philippians 1.27, we see more of this oneness. Paul appeals to the Philippians, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or, or remain absent to the church in Philippi. But then he says, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that is what our unity is, is around. It's around the faith of the gospel. Our harmoniousness, our, our harmony is around the gospel. We're striving together to see the gospel proclaimed, to see more worshipers on the day of visitation. Philippians 2, verses 2 and 3 describes more of this. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That is what harmoniousness is. I should probably start saying harmoniousness. I don't know if that's a real word. It's what harmony is. It comes from sharing priorities with one another. It comes from a purpose that's greater than our preferences. That is what that unity is around, or, or the unity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that kind of unity we see in Acts 2 after God uphors his spirit, and we see the disciples working together for the proclamation of Jesus Christ. It is to be driven by a passion for God's glory 
in his church, pursuing making disciples and seeing more come to the knowledge of him. That is what our unity is around. The word harmonious is a good indication that what Peter's describing here is relationships within the church. See, only those who are in Jesus Christ are going to pursue the glory of Jesus Christ. We don't have this harmony with those who don't know Jesus Christ. We might have a common purpose in our job. We may have a common purpose even with lost family where we're trying to pay off the house. But harmonious here is what we are trying to accomplish together as saints. We are all part of that together. Harmony is being on the field for the same team. It's not being in the stands. A unity of mind will result in a unity of purpose. He called on them to show the excellence of righteousness in their being harmonious. And then he also says sympathetic. Sympathetic is understanding. It's feeling what someone else feels. It could be sharing the suffering of another, but not only suffering. It could be participating in a whole range of their experiences. One commentator describes it as caring deeply about the needs, the joys, the sorrows of others. Paul captures this sympathy so well in Romans 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's caring about the individual among us. That we care about what life experiences God has used in their lives to make them who they are now. It's caring about what someone is going through. When we have this sympathy, that when we have this understanding, it's like a stone that's thrown into a pond. And it just doesn't, doesn't plummet, it causes ripples. And those ripples are felt by the whole pond. We are that pond. Now we're not all going to feel everyone's suffering or everyone's joy in the same way. Our care groups are probably where most of us feel that joy and suffering the most. But it does extend to all of us. And we have a heart that is open towards that. To be sympathetic, to be understanding, uh, so, so that when something happens there, it ripples all the way over here. It's beautiful. This, this righteousness among us is to be harmonious, is to be sympathetic. It's also is to be brotherly, the New American Standard has it. And ESV has it as brotherly love, which is really better. It's another clear indication here that Peter's describing relationships among the saints. It's an important theme to Peter. When we have become strangers and aliens in this earth, when, when, when we are pilgrims, when we have left the world's purposes and have joined ourselves to Jesus Christ, our brotherhood is important. And it was to Peter, he talks a lot about it. So much so, in 1 Peter 1.22, he says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, because you have obeyed the gospel, Jesus commanded you to believe, and you have, because you have an obedience to truth, purified your souls. And there's a purpose in our being saved, in this obedience to the truth, for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. And that love of the brethren there is the same root of this word as the New, as the New American Standard has it, as brotherly. 
You were saved for a sincere love of the brethren. I can't say that, 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 that the only place you have that is not in care groups, but it's part of the, the blessing of weekly care groups so that we can participate in the sincere love of the brethren. Now, that's not the only place. You, you, you can join together all during the week. But for the sincere love of the brethren, First Peter says, honor all people. We should be honoring everyone, regardless of whether they're saved, but love the brotherhood. He's not saying we shouldn't love those who don't know the Lord, but there's something special among the brotherhood. We are those who are pilgrims together. We are those who are longing for the new heaven and the new earth together. We have been united to one Father through our brother, Jesus Christ, the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 12.10, Paul describes this brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Are you devoted to one another in brotherly love? See, church is not something we check in and we're not keeping attendance. You devoted to one another in brotherly love. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 describes where this love comes from. The Apostle Paul says, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you have been taught by God to love one another. You still need to obey that. But, but you love those who share that similar birth to you. So be devoted to them. We ought to be intensely loyal. We ought to be affectionate. It ought really to surpass any, any love we have for our physical brothers and sisters. We are also ought to be kind-hearted. Or ESV as, as a tender heart. It's good-hearted. Or... or a more literal might be good gutted. Good gutted. That doesn't sound like a good thing. But it's that compassion that comes from within. That, that, that kind of that deeply felt in your intestines love for someone or compassion when they're going through something. It's your innards going out to them in the best way possible. It's a similar meaning to, to being sympathetic. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. Now, that doesn't mean that you know everything about everyone. But how do you respond when you learn that your brother or sister is suffering? Do you physically feel your heart going out to them? Or when you see them captured in sin, do, 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 does your heart go out to them? Are you, are you tender-hearted? See, this is beautiful righteousness. This is excellent righteousness. This is excellent conduct that should make the world stop and smell the beauty that God's accomplishing in our life. And then he says, humble in spirit. Now, the word in, in Greek, humble, has a range of meanings from lowly to, to, to insignificant to weak to poor, and it was not a, a positive word in Greek. The Greeks looked down on lowliness because as, it was, as if it was something that people deserved. They were lowly because they had low character. They, they didn't have virtue. But the Lord requires lowliness. He requires humility of those who would come to him. The same Greek word for humility is in Psalm 51, verse 17. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, a humble heart, a lowly heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Any who come to God must come through Jesus Christ, and that requires us to be humble, to have a low view of ourselves, to have an accurate view of ourselves. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who come to be for him realizes that they are impoverished, that they have nothing to barter with. They come to God completely empty. They have no right to be before him, no right in his presence. That is how any who comes to God will come through Jesus Christ only with that humility. And Jesus said that when he was comparing the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. And the tax collector boasted in everything he did and didn't do. The Pharisee, I mean, the, the Pharisee boasted what he did and didn't do. But the tax collector, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus talks about his humility. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The Pharisee exalted himself, but he eventually will be, will be humbled. But he who humbles himself, like the tax collector, himself will be exalted. And that is the humility that God is looking for. That humility towards God is going to be expressed in our relationship with one another. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Peter says again about humility, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's not just humble before God, although that's true, but also that humility before God is going to express itself in humility towards one another. Romans 12, 16, Paul calls them to not be haughty in mind, but to associate with the lowly, to not be wise in your own estimation. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, having the mind of Christ Jesus. And Philippians 2 goes on to explain the humility of Christ becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is what humility before God expresses itself as. Humility as a lowliness, as a concern for one another. If you accurately see yourself before the Lord, that's going to communicate into accurately perceiving yourself before one another. And you'll be more concerned about others good than your own. Now this is the, the, the excellence of righteousness that Peter describes Within the body, he transitions in the beginning of verse 9 to righteousness when mistreated. First Peter 3, verse 9 in the beginning says, Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Peter focuses now on relationships to, to persecutors. Now, it's possible that Peter does have in mind relationships within the body. And if you've been a Christian, you know that you can be insulted. You know that you can be reviled, that Christians do not always treat one another well in a way that pleases the Lord. But I think that Peter's focus here is on those who are persecuting them. In 1 Peter 2.23, so the word that, that we have in 1 Peter 3.9, the word insult, is used in 1 Peter 2.23 of uh, and, and it's translated there, revile. It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the same word. Well, being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. 
While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So we see here, just a few verses later, that Peter picks up that same theme. So I think that the focus here is unjust treatment, but especially from as Peter's audience was going through persecution, were being slandered and maligned, shamed and ostracized for their commitment to Jesus Christ. So Peter describes now the excellence of righteousness from those who are mistreating them. He tells them what not to do, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. And he's saying, don't revert to the old way of defending yourself. Don't retaliate, even when, it, when it's expected. And it would have been in the ancient world. When someone shames you, you shame them back. You get back at the person who is cutting you down. But Peter says, don't do that. Romans 12, verse 17 says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Peter tells them what not to do. He's saying, be like Jesus Christ. Don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. But instead, he tells them what to do. He says, but giving a blessing instead, or, or ESV, on the contrary, bless. He says, break that cycle of cursing. He tells them to do more than keep their mouths shut. Seek God's blessing for those who are attacking you. One commentator describes this blessing. Peter means that believers are to ask God to show his favor and grace upon those who have conferred injury upon them. So to bless someone is to pray for God's blessing upon their lives. That God would bring them into a right relationship with himself. That God would show his favor to them in Christ Jesus. It is to plead for their benefit, for their welfare. Not just physical blessings of this life, but true spiritual blessings, true peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's praying that they would enjoy a right relationship with God the Father. See, the heart of the redeemed seeks the redemption of the unredeemed. And the freed seeks the release of his fellow slaves or those who used to be slaves. In Luke 6, Jesus talks about this, verses 28 and 29. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Or Luke 6, verses 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So to, to respond the way that God responds with mercy, not, not exacting punishment, blessing those who curse you. Jesus said that in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is how we bless. Now, there's lots of ways we can show blessing to, 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 to those who are persecuting us. Lots of, of acts of good we could do. Lots of acts of kindness but there's something particularly humbling about working in our hearts as we pray to say, God, please save them. Show them the same grace that you showed me. I don't deserve salvation any more than they do. Even as they attack your son, please have mercy on them. Jesus demonstrated this blessing on the cross as the soldiers were casting lots for his clothes. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. 
or Stephen as he was being stoned in Acts 760. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Then he died. See, the, the excellence of this righteousness here is beautiful. It's beautiful, but it is impossible. It's beautiful, but it is impossible. It's impossible for us with, apart from union through Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't have this excellence of righteousness in your life. This, this harmonious, this harmony, this being sympathetic, this brotherly love. This kind-heartedness, this humility in spirit, this, this blessing those who persecute you apart from Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, we can be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.11. This is what the fruit of the Spirit is. As, as we understand God's grace to us in Christ Jesus, he empowers us to, to live this kind of way. We can't do this in ourselves, but only through Jesus Christ who lives if you are in him, if you've been united with him through faith, you can live in this kind of beautiful way. This is the kind of, of life that, 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 that Peter's been advocating now for over a chapter that would lead to more worshipers on the day of visitation. Well, Peter does motivate this righteousness. He's described it, and it is beautiful. And he motivates at the end of verse 9. He says, For you are called for, this very, for, the, for the very purpose that you might inherit a, a blessing. So you were called for this very purpose. Or the ESV has, for to this you were called. And we have to wonder, does that this look forward in the verse to the inheriting a blessing? Or does it look back? Well, there's a good uh, a hint from 1 Peter 2.21. That there, he says, for to this you've been called, and it looks backward. And I think that here Peter's looking backward. What have you been called to? Well, Peter has been talking about what we've been called to. That that call is a salvation call. 1 Peter 1.15, the Holy One who called you. 1 Peter 2.9, that we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, that salvation call is a transforming call. It's a call to obedience as well. It's not just plucking someone out of hell to save them. It's a, it, it's a life of obedience. We are in Christ Jesus created for good works, which God prepared, prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So when he says, for to this you've been called, he's looking back. And he says, you were called for this very purpose of giving a blessing instead. What is part of your salvation call? was that you would suffer, as 1 Peter 2, verses 19 and 20 talks about. You were called to suffer. And you were called to bless. That is part of God's plan in saving you, to bless those who are persecuting you. God's plan was for us to call upon him to call others to him. So as we're being persecuted, God's plan was for us to call to God for the blessing of others. That was part of our salvation call, to be used by him in the salvation of our persecutors. You were saved to bless those who mock you. 
See, this is God's planned path for your glorification. It's God's planned path for you to become like his own son. So that should be motivating to us. This is the purpose of our calling. We are called for this reason, to bless. But there's also a result of that. And he describes the result next at the end of verse 9. For you were called for this purpose to give a blessing instead. And here's the result, that you might inherit a blessing. You were called to bless so that you might receive a blessing. Now Peter has spoken of our inheritance already. He describes it in 1 Peter 1.4 as this inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled that will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. It's our eternal destiny of being forever with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talked about us being inheritors of the grace of life in our previous verse in 1 Peter 3.7. This, this inheriting a blessing, it's the eternal well-being that the saints will forever enjoy on the last day. It is looking towards that final blessing of entering into God's presence, of him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. The blessing we inherit is our eternally delighting in God. It's internally enjoying the, his rewards from him. It's eternally serving him in obedience. This is the blessing that we inherit. Now, Peter's made clear, we don't gain, I mean, we don't earn this blessing. We inherit it, but we don't earn it. We don't, in, in general, we don't earn an inheritance, right? We get an inheritance, it's given to us. We don't earn an inheritance. Peter's made, made very clear in the book that our salvation has been given to us by God. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is the work of God in our hearts to bring us to a living hope. It's he has caused us to be born again. He has given us new life through the living and enduring word of God. It's God who preserves our faith, says 1 Peter 1.5, that we're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So although our salvation is God's work, and that God is the one who's preserving us in faith, God responds to our blessing others by our inheriting a blessing. And that, that's what the end of verse 9 teaches by giving you a blessing instead, for you were called for this purpose to bless, that you might inherit a blessing. He rewards our blessing others, our loving our enemies, our, our, our desiring God to extend mercy to those who are persecuting us with the reward of his blessing. God has planned our righteousness. He has empowered our righteousness so that he might reward our righteousness. And that's amazing. You come away from that. We don't deserve that. He's planned our righteousness. He's empowered our righteousness so that he might reward our righteousness. And that's not a righteousness that comes from us, but comes from our union with Jesus Christ. Would you inherit this blessing? Would you be welcomed by the Lord into his presence? Would you be rewarded by him? Well, then cultivate this excellence of righteousness. God is a rewarder of obedience. Romans 2, verses 6 through 8. He will render to each person according to his deeds. 
to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. They inherit the blessing of eternal life. Again, we're not saying that we earn that blessing, but we demonstrate it. We demonstrate that we have been saved through our blessing others. And I would extend that, this, this inheriting of blessing, and we're going to see that in the next verses. It's not just referring to our blessing others. It's referring to all the righteousness he's described, our being harmonious and sympathetic and loving in that brotherly way and kind-hearted and humble in spirit and not retaliating and blessing our enemies. That as that is the character of our life, he says, you'll inherit a blessing, forever welcomed into the Father's presence. And that should be motivating to us to persist in good deeds, encouraging to our moms here this morning to persist in good deeds, to keep cultivating the excellent righteousness, righteousness that only comes through faith in Christ. I think, I mean, in ways, Peter could have stopped there at verse 9. It's not like he has to quote Old Testament text to convince us of, of this truth, but he does. And I think he quotes next in verses 10 through 12, as he describes the certainty of blessing, he brings out a psalm that was important to him, a psalm that he'd been meditating on. And it's clear because it is a psalm that themes and, and, and even other close quotations are, are in this book. You could guess that this was a favorite psalm of Peter. Psalm 34 is a psalm that focuses on the Lord's deliverance of those who cry out to him who find the refuge in him. And this would have been a very um, intentional psalm for Peter to be meditating on. It's an appropriate psalm as he's writing to saints, as he himself was, who are shamed for their allegiance to Christ. So Peter was quoting this because of his personal meditation on this psalm, from the comfort that he received from this psalm. And so as he exhorts him, as he, as he summarizes, as he encapsulates what this beautiful life is that could lead to others wanting to become God's worshipers. It's like he says, this is exactly what David was talking about. This is exactly the kind of righteousness that David described, the kind of righteousness that God blesses. We see in verse 10 that the psalm of David here, that David also motivates righteousness with the Lord's blessing. Now, we don't see that righteousness yet. We see the blessing first. He motivates righteousness with the Lord's blessing, just as Peter did. He just did that in the previous verse, that you may inherit a blessing. Well, David does it. He says, for the one who desires life, to love and see good days. David's also motivating them with a blessing, the love of life and good days. Now, David is motivating them here by principles in God's word, that obedience leads to blessing in this life and that the righteous would enjoy life. And I would say that overall, probably most of us have experienced that. The more we obey, the more we enjoy God's blessing in this life. It may not be financial blessing, it may not be health blessing, but we enjoy salvation. 
Now, David's focus, I think, in, in, in this verse is primarily in this life. But Peter's focus is on life eternal. That what the eternity that we are going to inherit. But that doesn't mean that, Pete, that David wasn't looking forward to eternity. And it doesn't mean that Peter wasn't enjoying life now. Remember, he said in verse 8 of chapter 1, Peter did, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. God's blessings are enjoyed by the saints in this life, but they are still waiting to inherit that blessing. David and most Old Testament saints had focused a little bit more on the stage of this life now. So eternity is most enjoyed. Eternal life will be most enjoyed in eternity, but it can be truly enjoyed now. So just so that you see that David isn't just promising like, like some health, wealth, prosperity gospel. The one who desires life, to love and see good days, to have tons of money and a great car. If you read Psalm 34, David, like Peter, knew that, that, that life was full of suffering. In fact, he, he, he had said in uh, Psalm 34, verse 16, or 34 verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's, that's, that's what David's saying. So he's promising this good life and, 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 and a love of days. He says many are the afflictions of the righteous. The psalm is, is full of fears and shames and trouble, of crying out to God and finding a refuge in him and looking to him in times of trouble. So David didn't have some kind of... of, of Pollyanna view of the world. If you just do what God says, everything's going to be wonderful. And neither did Peter. Peter's been talking about that, about how they've been distressed by various trials and not being uh, surprised by the fiery ordeal that they have to go through. So David's eyes might have been a little bit more in blessing in, in this life. He still, he still looked towards the eternal. Peter's eyes was most on the eternal, but he still knew that this life was blessed by the world. But both of them together are motivating with God's blessing a life of righteousness. Now, Peter motivated them, and he had also described to them what this excellence of righteousness is. And that's exactly what David does next. He describes to them in 1 Peter 3, verses 10 through 11, from Psalm 34, what, this right, what, this, what, what, what does this righteousness look like? It describes as, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. See, those who are blessed by God are righteous. The righteous are marked by what they don't say. They keep their lips from speaking what is morally reprehensible. They, 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 they keep their tongue from trickery. The righteous are distinguished here by David by what they don't do. They, they turn away from evil. They refuse to participate in it. They're repulsed by evil. The righteous are known for what they do instead. David describes them as they, they must turn away from evil and they do good. And Peter's been talking a ton about doing good. 1 Peter 2.15, 1 Peter 2.20, 1 Peter 3.6, all refer to doing right. And those, uh, he uses one word in the Greek there that's from doing and good. He probably got this idea from Psalm 34 of doing good. So the righteous are known by what they don't say, but what they don't do, but what they do instead, and what they pursue, what they're striving after. He says that the righteous seek peace and pursue it. 
That peace is a, a harmony, a well-being. It's the absence of conflict. It's the overflow of a right relationship with the Lord. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Romans 12, 18, Paul encourages, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Hebrews 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all men. Now, we know that true peace amongst us is only found in Jesus Christ. But to the extent that we have possible, whether inside or outside of the church, we're to seek to be at peace with all men. And that's what David's describing as righteousness here. It's not righteous, not peace at any cost, like we're going to forsake what is true in God's word, or we're going to join around evil. But those who are righteous seek peace and pursue it. A true peacemaker ultimately is concerned that people have peace with the Lord Jesus Christ. So David has motivated them to pursue righteousness, one who desires life to love and see good days. He's described righteousness in 10 and 11. And then David explains why this righteousness has to be cultivated in verse 12. Now, if you see in your Bibles, there's a four there. Peter adds that four. He, he adds that to make, to make explicit what is implied in Psalm 34. He wants to show that there's a, a logical connection there between what this righteous life lo looks like, why God blesses it. And so he says, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and he and, 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 he, and his ears attend to their prayers. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers. See, righteousness matters. The excellence of our righteousness matters because the Lord is pleased by our righteousness. And he rewards those who are righteous. If, you're, if you belong to him, you demonstrate your belonging to him through the excellence of your righteousness. And that's how you enjoy the benefit of being his people. See, righteousness reveals relationship. Righteousness reveals relationship. But relationship is the source of righteousness. Relationship is the source of righteousness. Our righteousness is not something that we drum up inside of ourselves. It is revealed through our relationship with God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.9 describes this. No one who's born of God practices sin is the ongoing pattern of his life because his seed abides in him. God has given him new birth and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Relationship with God the Father is revealed in our excellent, beautiful righteousness. The Lord responds to the righteousness of his people with a watchful, rewarding eye. And his ears attentive to their prayers. 2 Chronicles 16.9 describes this, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. We see the, the, the Lord's attentiveness to his people. In Proverbs 15.8, the prayer of the upright is God's delight. It's kind of, if you imagine a, a playground, there's lots of kids on the playground. But on that playground, whose children am I attentive to? Mine. My eye is on them. They are my children. My ear is open to them. Any parents here understand that? More than all the others. God is attentive to those who are righteous. His, his, his ear is open to their prayers. But those who do evil, 
put themselves at odds with God. He describes at the end of verse 12, his face is against them. He's opposed to them. See, regardless of what blessings they enjoy in this life, the evil will not inherit blessings. They are not righteous. Their good days are short-lived. See, their lack of righteousness exposes not just a lack of relationship, but discloses instead that their relationship with God is one of defiance, of animosity toward their creator. To do what God says is evil is to reject his authority. It is to stiff arm him. It is to spit in the face of their father. And these are the only two kinds of life that scripture shows. Either you are righteous because of your relationship with him, or you have no relationship with him, and his face is against you, and your face is against him. And you're in enmity with him. To do evil is to spit in the face of your creator. I mean, could, 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 could you imagine spitting in the face of your earthly father? Spitting in the face of a police officer? Spitting in the face of a judge? All of that is foolishness. But that is what we do when we live unrighteously before God. And so if you are not righteous this morning, the answer is not to make yourself righteous. It's not to try to become righteous. It's not to drum up righteousness. Romans 10 verses 3 and 4 describes how the people of Israel says, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They try to make their own righteousness. They try to make themselves right with God. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They didn't submit. See, righteousness is given by God in Jesus Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There is righteousness available to you this morning through Jesus Christ alone. You can't make yourself righteous, but you can submit to the righteousness that he offers in Jesus Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.30 describes this, how, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's what you need is the righteousness from God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have righteousness this morning? If you have relationship with the Father, then that righteousness is going to be the increasing pattern of your life. 1 Peter 3 verses 8 and 9 are going to be descriptive of you. Do you have that righteousness? See, Peter quotes Psalm 34 to encourage the saints. The Lord is attentive to the righteous. His ear is to their prayers. Be comforted, saints in Asia Minor. The, the, the Lord is listening to your prayers. He's hearing your cries because you are the righteous. And he will welcome you into his presence. And you will have life and love and see good days eternal. And you will inherit a blessing. So has your trust in the Lord, has your faith in Jesus Christ led you to cultivating this righteousness in your life? Do you have this beauty of righteousness? Is the world stopping by the garden of your life? And do they, do they either say, I hate those roses, or do they smell them and say, oh, there's something beautiful there. Will you inherit this blessing, this blessing of unending joy in your Father's presence? Peter has a stern warning. It's not, it's not the main point. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
The encouragement is his ear is attentive to the prayers of the righteous. Really, is there a bigger question this morning than am I righteous? Remember, if you are positionally righteous in Christ, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, if he has made you righteous, you're going to demonstrate that righteousness through this beauty of righteousness he describes in verses 8 and 9. Do you have the beauty of righteousness in your life? Let's pray. Father, uh, 2,000 years ago, Peter was concerned about your glory. He was concerned about uh, more worshiping you on the day when Christ returns. He was concerned about the greatness of Christ being made known. And Father, that is what is uniting our hearts here this morning. We too want to see your Son glorified. We want to become uh, the people that Peter is challenging these first century saints to become. Lord, we confess that we cannot do this on our own, that apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. But those of us who are in him are not apart. We have his spirit uniting us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be dependent, to be prayerful, but then to be active. Lord, to be cultivating righteousness, Lord, to bless those who curse us. To, uh, and I know that many of us feel that increasingly. Lord, guard our responses as the world becomes increasingly hostile towards Christians. And as we hear news articles, Lord, it is good uh, to, feel, to feel a desire for your justice, but also help us to, to, to prayerfully um, bless those who, who persecute us. Help that to be true in our families, for those who have often mocked us for our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And please, Father, help us uh, to be those who are motivated by, 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 by just a little closer and we get to inherit this eternal blessing. Help us to be motivated by the fact that this is the, the, the time to make your son known. And help us to take seriously the cultivation of brotherly love and of sympathy, of being harmonious. Lord, help us to be cultivating this righteousness in our life because of our relationship to you, because we've been born of you. In Jesus' name, amen.